Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Women Belong in the House. I'm your host, Jenny Kaplan. Today we're talking about a state frequently in election headlines. Its size and political makeup make it impossible for either major political party to ignore. Welcome to Florida. Both candidates campaigned hard in the swing state of Florida. Why is it so important? With 29 electoral votes, Florida is the biggest prize of the battleground states. Seven statewide elections, including races for president, governor, and the Senate, have been decided by a margin of 1.2 percentage points or less. Here's Tori Taylor. Tori is the co-executive director of Swing Left, a national grassroots organization that raises money for Democratic candidates and organizes volunteers across the country for those candidates. Tori's also a longtime friend of Wonder Media Network. Florida is kind of the perennial swing state. Um, you know, I've worked in Florida a couple election cycles, including the 2016 election, um, which was a pretty brutal <laughs> election cycle to be a Democrat in Florida. You know, Florida is a tough state politically for a number of reasons. One, it's huge. Florida is like six states put into one state. Um, I don't think anybody really understands how big Florida is until you look at the diversity in that state in terms of different communities and the different issues that matter to those voters. For example, you know, South Florida is a traditional bed of kind of Democratic voters, um, kind of a blue hotspot with very large communities of color. Um, we get to Central Florida, which is a much older population, a lot of retirees. Then we also get to North Florida, which actually looks a lot more like Alabama or some of these very deep Southern traditionally red states outside of, you know, a couple college towns like Tallahassee and Jacksonville. So why does it feel like it's always so darn close in Florida? What you typically see on election night in Florida is you see a lot of Democratic votes coming in from the South. Then you see kind of the red wall of northern Florida start to chip away at the gains that, that Democrats made in South Florida. And so it's just kind of a balancing act every single election cycle. How much can you rack up the score in South Florida and how much can you hold the wall in North Florida of Republican votes. And sometimes that wall is held for Democrats and sometimes it's not. But I think what you've seen the past few election cycles is Democrats have had a like a challenging time racking up as much as many votes as they need in the southern part of Florida and holding that wall in northern Florida. And so that is kind of the balancing act that every campaign that's running statewide in Florida is going to have. Again, because the state is so big, what that also means is the state is very expensive. Um, you know, in a state that doesn't have quite as much partisan and kind of demographic diversity that a state like Florida does. In 2016, that battle was won by the Republicans. Donald Trump won the state by around 1% of the vote. Like in many other parts of the country, the response to those results was a rise of progressive activism. But in Florida, 
the blue wave didn't necessarily come to fruition the way it did in other states. What you've seen since 2016 is in 2018, after Trump's election, there was really kind of this grassroots wave of progressive activism that we really saw carry us into the 2017 elections and saw a lot of Democratic wins at the local level and kind of built towards this blue wave in 2018 where Democrats took back the House. But what you saw in Florida was that blue wave kind of stopped a little bit in the state of Florida because we lost the gubernatorial race with Andrew Gillum and we also lost the Senate race very narrowly with Bill Nelson. And so there's been a lot of speculation that, you know, Florida may have like a little bit of a redder tent since then. But on the same hand, we also saw picking up several house seats in Florida, especially South Florida. And so I think as we go into 2020, there's really going to be a question of, you know, how much investment that we're going to see from the presidential races in this state, you know, how much work is going to be happening at the local level in terms of like really pushing out some of these state legislative candidates. The Florida um, legislature is in play, you know, where swing left is um, heavily targeting the Florida legislature. There's a number of there's a number of um, competitive congressional races races still in Florida this year. And so I think we're still going to see the same amount of investment, if not some increased investment, because of a little bit of the red tent that I think some folks have attached to the state since then. But, you know, the fact of the matter is Florida is so big and they have such a large portion of the Electoral College that there's not it's not realistic that that state is ever going to be written off for either candidate. Florida has 29 Electoral College votes. There's too much at stake for presidential candidates not to pay attention. Because the state of Florida is so big and potentially important, today we're highlighting two women who are running for the House from different parts of the state, Representatives Debbie Mukersel-Powell and Val Demings. Representative Debbie Mukersel-Powell won in 2018 as part of the Blue Wave. I represent Florida's 26th district. People call it the southernmost district in the country. I think it's one of the most beautiful districts in the country because it includes the Florida Keys, and parts of Miami-Dade County. I represent an area that has been ignored for quite some time. You know, it's it's an area that has, is comprised of 70% Hispanic residents, 12 to 13% African-Americans, hardworking families live in my district. The average income is about $44,000 a year. And it's, it's a district that people really have not been reached out to or represented in Congress. And I've dedicated my entire career working in this district. I did work at Coral Restoration Foundation in the Florida Keys in, in a nonprofit there. And I also started working actually in Zoo Miami, working on education programs and bringing awareness to endangered species here in Florida. But most of my career was at FIU, which is also located in my district. I started working there in 2003 until we got the medical school approved, and then I became the associate dean at at FIU. Representative Val Demings is running for her third term from Florida's 10th district. Well, I'm Val Demings. I'm a member of the U.S. House of Representatives. I represent Congressional District 10 in Florida. All of my constituents are in West Orange County, Orlando. And so I have all of the theme parks, uh, I have the majority of the hospitality uh, industry, and I have a very diverse district. Both Debbie and Val described their life stories as embodiments of the American dream. Here's Debbie. One of the things that a lot of people don't realize, I'm the youngest of four sisters. 
I always looked up to my sisters, my mom. My mom decided to bring my sisters and I to the United States to really provide us with opportunities. My mom actually living in Ecuador after she separated from my dad realized, you know, she wanted to work. She wanted to be independent. She wanted to provide for her family. And she knew that wasn't really possible in a country like Ecuador at the time. So she came to the United States. She came actually first to California and I was 14 at the time. And it was really hard to leave your friends, your family, your country. My mom didn't speak English at the time. We didn't have much of anything when we got here. We all lived in a really, really small apartment. And she started doing all sorts of jobs just to make ends meet. And I started working at 15 at this donut shop. And that's why uh, I never eat donuts anymore because I ate so many donuts during high school. But because of of all the work that I did in school and, and the hard work of my mother, I was able to get a scholarship to go to college. And I truly believe that those opportunities are what really provided me with this incredible chance to represent this district. I am now the first South American-born member to ever represent a district in the United States. And it only happens here, right? In, in the United States, it's, it's the American dream. But my story is not just mine. I mean, I share this with thousands and thousands of people that live here in South Florida. Half of the people that live in my district were born in a different country. And they all come looking for those opportunities. One of the things that I don't know if your listeners know, but one thing that really changed me is when I was 24 years old and I lost my dad to gun violence, I was just finishing my master's degree. I was still in California at the time. And I heard the news that really changed my life and my family's life forever. And I decided at the time, I, I wanted to work to lift up communities and I thought I would I would spend my career working to help third world countries actually become economically independent and, and build sustainability programs. But I, I moved to Miami right after that because my sister had moved to Miami for work and I wanted to help this community. And I fell in love with the 26th district, fell in love. I fell in love with the Keys very early on when I first moved down here and we started going there and spending every chance we got down there Debbie's love for the area inspired her to get involved, but she feared the kinds of opportunities that had led to her success were diminishing. But I saw that these opportunities that had brought me to where I was really were being taken away for too many families down here. It was, make, it was getting harder for kids to go to, to a good school. The funding for public schools were continued to be cut every single year by the state legislature, by federal government. And I was working then at the time at FIU. I was very involved in volunteering and campaigns. So I worked in the John Kerry campaign. I worked in the Obama campaign. And then a group of women said, you know, we, we think you should run. And I thought they were crazy. I thought they were crazy. I was married. I had kids. I had my career. Why would I all of a sudden change my entire career? I hadn't thought about that. But then I realized that it was the way for me to actually make a larger impact in this area that I had always loved and that I saw so many families struggling. And so I did it. And it was women who helped me get here. I mean, Emily's List was the first to endorse and I had an army of women really helping me down here. I live in an area where it's definitely sexist, you know, you can say definitely because Latino culture still abides by traditional rules, right? Um, I had actually people ask me, who's going to take care of your kids? 
but you know, my kids also have a father. So I would tell them, well, my husband, uh, when I'm traveling, of course, but it, it, it was just not clicking for a lot of people down here. So it was, it was tough, but because of so many people that believed that I could do it. And so many people that also understood that I was doing it for the right reasons really helped me get there. And I unseated an incumbent that everyone thought was not going to be able to be beat. And so I'm very proud of that victory. Val Demings also described her path as one of those only in America kinds of arcs. I think it's a pretty amazing story because it is a true American story. And I am so honored to be a part of it. I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida. I've lived in Florida all of my life. Uh, My mother was a maid and my father a janitor. I'm the youngest of seven children. I grew up in a two bedroom wood frame house. We grew up very, very poor. But fortunately, um, I had parents who always taught me to not allow my present circumstances to determine my future potential. And so they said, when people tell you you're not the right color, you're certainly not the right gender, you can't do it, you don't have enough money, you don't have a famous last name, to basically ignore that and let my success be determined by my hard work. And, uh, and so I had an opportunity to go to college at a Florida State University. I graduated college, which those four years were, I think, just miracle years because we didn't really have the money for me to be there, but we found a way to make it work and you know hit the ground running. My first job was as a social worker and then to the police department. I was recruited to run for Congress. Uh, first thought that was a crazy idea, ultimately made the decision to run and here we are. And so, you know, now I see part of my job, in addition to passing legislation that will help to improve the quality of life for persons, is to be a role model and to help other people, women and others who may have grown up like me or have been told that, no, it's never been for them to find a way to make it happen. When Val was first asked to run, she wasn't so sure it was a good idea. Then she learned that most women tend to think that way. I remember when I was uh, recruited by the D-Trip to run for Congress and I was um, had just announced my retirement from the police department and I thought, there's no way I will do that. I'm a little rough around the edges. I mean what I say and say what I mean. I don't think I'd make a good politician. But I have to admit that I was also dealing with a little bit of, it's something new. Will I be accepted? Will people support me? And when I visited Washington, D.C. and had a conversation with leadership, I remember uh, someone in leadership saying to me that women generally have to be asked seven times before we will do something out of the box, before we will do something we've never done before. And then as we're contemplating it, we'll go around and ask permission and we'll do it this way. You don't think I should run for office, do you? You don't think anybody will support me, do you? I don't know if people will give me their money. Maybe I shouldn't do it. And they said, but men just kind of look in the mirror and say, my goodness, I'd make a great senator or a great congressman. And so, but you know, I so appreciate women in leadership because women in leadership are like good quarterbacks. We have the ability to see the entire field. We know where everybody is and what they're doing. 
We don't mind working as a team. We don't mind sharing information and asking for feedback. And I just think women make great leaders. And um, I am excited about, I was excited about 2018 and very excited of the number of women who are running. I'm excited about the 101 women, number of women that we have uh, in the House of Representatives, but it's 435 total members. And I just am delighted when I see more women run. The issues that Floridians care about most sound like the issues that we've heard a lot about across the country. Healthcare, the economy, and social justice. Here's Tori Taylor again. But I think in Florida, you know, we're seeing the same type of issues that are really tracking nationally in some other states, including, you know, the government's response to COVID, not only, you know, the failure of the national response with the Trump administration, but also some of the failures that have happened on the state level, skyrocketing unemployment and health insurance issues. You know, I think in Florida, there were about 3 million Floridians already uninsured in Florida before the pandemic. And because health insurance is so tied to employment, those numbers have only skyrocketed um, with skyrocketing unemployment since the the pandemic hit. And so, you know, I think we're seeing issues um, of economic distress, of worries around health insurance. And, you know, there are a number of, like I said, the diversity with a number of the communities in Florida, like the central Florida area with some such an older population, Social Security, Medicare, you know, some of those issues are very predominant in the state of Florida because they have such an older population. And we also have a lot of young people in Florida, a lot of communities of color, you know, the racial unrest that we've seen in the country, criminal justice reform um, is definitely a big issue in Florida, especially given um, the Amendment 4 campaign in 2018, which was a campaign to restore the rights of felons to vote in Florida, which has seen a lot of like judicial and kind of legal battles over the last two years and has been in the news a lot. So there's really a litany of issues that people in Florida are really focused on. And we're seeing a lot of campaigns and candidates speak to those issues. But again, you know, Florida is such a large state. It's really hard um, to have a one size fits all strategy for Florida. You really see a lot of these candidates take very specific segmented messages to particular parts of that state and particular media markets to really drive the right message home to the right group of people um, because they're also different. The messages that you see someone talking about in the panhandle are not going to be the same messages that you see them talking about in a place like Miami. Florida generally, and Debbie and Val's districts specifically, were hit hard by the double pandemic we've talked about all season. COVID has rocked the state, both from a health perspective and economically. Here's Val Demings. Tourism is really the engine that drives the economy here in my district. And so people are, you know, either unemployed or afraid they're going to lose uh, their jobs. Uh, They're worried about being evicted. We already have a uh, affordable housing crisis uh, in Central Florida. And of course, COVID-19 and its consequences has just exacerbated uh, that issue. And so they're worried about being evicted. Those who have applied for unemployment, as I'm sure you know, we had some major issues really with uh, the state's unemployment system. And so just trying to make sure that people uh, have a bridge, if you will, Uh, from this crisis to being able to survive, to we're able to get the virus under control so we can get back to to normal. So those are the issues we hear from them 
every day. And uh, that's what keeps us up all night as it should. Debbie said that her constituents are facing similar challenges. Florida is a complicated state because there's so much diversity in our state. The northern part of Florida is completely different from the central part. The central part is very different from the southern part. So it's a pretty large state. And we have a lot of different groups of of people living in this area. So my district, for example, I have to speak with Venezuelan Americans, Cuban Americans, Ecuadorian Americans, Mexican Americans, and they have their different priorities, but then ultimately they all also have the same priorities that all Americans have. And right now it's to contain COVID, to get back to work, to get your school, your kids back to school. As a mom, I'm ready to send my kids back to school. How do we get there? How do we do it in the safest way possible? Um, but also recognizing that they have families in the countries that they left behind. And so foreign policy is very, very important. Representatives have had to be all hands on deck to try to help deal with the challenges we face. Debbie said that's made this election feel quite different than the race two years ago. I mean, it's night and day. First of all, I'm in office. And I knew that at the beginning of the pandemic, we had to take immediate action um, as we saw this virus starting to come into our community. So I worked because I had had my career at FIU at the medical school, I had very close relationships with public health experts, and we started working closely to get legislation passed that would provide the relief, the funding that um, our public health infrastructure needed, our schools, um, families that needed that stimulus payment, the unemployment benefits that we passed in CARES Act. So that's what we do. I was completely focused on doing that. At the same time, knowing that um, the Miami-Dade County mayor had just filed to run against me. So I knew I was gonna have a race, but I was completely focused at the time for the first few months, really, of the pandemic to do everything I can to provide the resources, the support, the information in my district. I had multiple, multiple Zoom meetings with our pastors, with our local elected officials, with school board members. I mean, everything I could do just to bring resources down, protect our families from getting COVID. And remember, I have a minority district, so we got impacted much at a much higher rate than many other areas in the country. Miami-Dade County, actually, because of the failure of this county mayor, became an international hotspot, international hotspot, because we had more cases than many other countries combined in this county. So dealing with that, but then at the same time, dealing with the challenge, like so millions of Americans that had to stay home, working from home, helping your kids, get uh, their their education online as a mom you know having to make help them get through that taking care of my mom making sure that I didn't expose her because I still had to fly back and forth to Washington and my mom lives with me um, and not seeing my people I mean I and and I'm sure this is the case for many of the representatives in Congress we need to see our voters. We need to feel them, hear from them, to know how they're doing. And it was really, it has been very tough. I want to hug, I want to go out there, knock on doors and hug my my constituents and give them the support that they need or, or just greet them. And it's not, that's not happening, right? We need to be very, very careful. So you don't have a real sense of what's happening on the ground. That's really hard. Um, you also can't directly know from all those knocks doors that I knocked on, like in 2018, what they're thinking, what they're feeling, what they need. 
So it makes it harder also as a representative to do the work that you need to do. So that's why I've had so many town halls and, and, and all of that. So very hard, very, very different. And you have to be creative in ways to reach them. Representatives are also facing the same challenges personally as everyone else. I asked Debbie how she's been dealing with the many roles required of people, and especially of women, since March. Well, first of all, can we all agree, I don't know if you have kids, Jenny, but our kids are becoming hermits, like, behind the computer. Like, I have to, like, take them out. My daughter is on online classes all day in her pajamas, like, her pajama bottoms, and then, like, just her school shirt. Oh my God, I have those fights every single day with my kids. So that's part of my, part of my day is just making sure that my kids actually brush their hair, brush their teeth and get out of their pajamas at some point during the day. Um, But the, the first year that I took office, I wanted to just concentrate on working for the district. What can I do in my committees? What can I bring down that what resources can I bring down to make it easier for people to rent apartments because it's so expensive to live down here? What do I need to do to expand access to quality health care? So I was very focused on that. And I wasn't paying attention too much to campaigning, although we knew that we had to start raising money just to, you know, the speaker always says there's nothing, no message stronger to your opponent than a very big bank account. And so we a lot of us started doing that early on, and I'm, I'm grateful that I did that because I do have a lot of resources now. I need more, but I have a lot of resources. Um, but this year, this year has been, t- been really tough because we're dealing with a campaign. I'm dealing with a lot of official work to make sure that I do whatever I can because we have a pandemic. We're going through a pandemic. I have to also help my mother with her health care. During a pandemic, I mean, she's had to go to the clinic, and I can't tell you the anxiety of taking her during COVID here in Miami-Dade County when we've had such high positivity rate. Um, and then my kids, you know, and at some point, uh, you you worry because your kids need to socialize. Your kids need to be physically active. My son had been playing soccer his entire life, and from one day to the next, no more soccer. And for months... He wasn't playing soccer. My daughter was doing horseback riding, the same thing. And that was her passion. And so making sure that your family is mentally healthy, right? That, they, that they're that they doing okay. And me having to fly back and forth to DC, how do I find balance? I, To be honest, Jenny, I don't have balance right now. I'm hoping that after November, I'll find some time to bring it back to some sort of sane schedule On top of the already tenuous balance candidates in Florida are having to strike, the state is under more pressure than ever. More money and attention are being funneled into the state as the candidates on the top of the ballot vie for votes. And local and state elected officials argue over voter registration and suppression. More on that after the break. I want to tell you about an awesome platform called Bonfire that we've been using at Wonder Media Network. Bonfire.com is the easiest way to design, sell, and order premium shirts, all virtually and risk-free with no out-of-pocket costs. On Bonfire.com, you can upload a design or use their templates to promote a fundraiser to your community. They'll take care of printing and shipping the finished product to your buyers. I worked with the Bonfire team to create a Women Belong in the House t-shirt for all of you to campaign in and rock this election season, and I've truly been living in it ever since. Their fundraising feature lets you accept additional donations on top of shirt sales. 
and you can even send all proceeds directly to your favorite nonprofit. If you're a political campaign, Bonfire is also compliant with all campaign finance laws and can give you additional insight into your supporters, making fundraising nice and hassle-free. Bonfire is trusted by the Women's March, California Women's List, Rock the Vote, and Wonder Media Network. You can check out the Women Belong in the House shirt we designed at wondermedianetwork.com bonfire. Make sure to tag me on Twitter at Jenny M. Kaplan or Wonder Media Network on Instagram at WMN.media and any pictures of you rocking your Women Belong in the House t-shirt. And sign up for Bonfire's awesome platform to use your own platform for good at wondermedianetwork.com bonfire. 2020 has been quite a year. If nothing else, voters are paying attention. Here's Representative Val Demings. I think anybody who's running uh, loves running in a presidential year because, you know, whoever or whatever brings people to the polls is always a good thing. But we're taking nothing for granted. Uh, I am still working hard to get my message out to the voters. I'm running for my third term and you know, we have certainly an agenda right now that I think most voters, when a lot of voters are usually not paying attention until a certain time, I certainly think this year, 2020, for the majority, they have been paying attention because as we dealt with, look, we started the year off with an impeachment trial. We then rolled into COVID-19. We've seen uh, civil unrest in all 50 states. I think more people are paying attention than ever and it's incumbent upon those who are on the ballot to make sure that we're getting our message out to those voters. National focus on Florida boosts visibility and spending. That can be helpful or very hurtful for a local campaign. In previous episodes, we've talked about those benefits and challenges. In Florida, the stakes and price tags are high. Here's Representative Debbie Mukersel-Powell again. The Miami media market is one of the most expensive markets in the country. And this is why I have such a challenging race. The county mayor, my opponent, has been in office nine years. And he's been on local news and local TV for many years. People know who he is. I just got elected in 2018. I was working in this community, but not in the public eye. I was always doing it behind the scenes. So building my name ID is, like you said, it's it, it requires a lot of investments to reach out to those hardworking families that right now maybe either lost their job or lost a loved one. For me to be in front of them, it's going to take a lot of resources and a lot of work, right? Um, And with the presidential combined, I I can't even tell you how expensive it is because everyone's buying ads at this point. And when I buy uh, ads for the Miami market, my ads are going all the way up to northern Miami, which is not part of the district, but it's part of the media that you have to buy. So yeah, my race in 2018 was one of the top three most expensive races. And it'll probably be the same. In 2018, it costs like $25 million with from both sides investing, all groups investing in the race. Two major questions facing both parties are who can register more voters and who can get out the vote? Debbie fears the National Democrats may have gotten in the game too late. Unfortunately, what I've seen happens is that people leave the state for the last minute. They realize two months before the election that they actually could win Florida. And so everyone's scrambling, trying trying to reach out to voters. But many times it's late because the Republicans have had a stronghold here in the state for 20 years. They know how to reach out to their constituents 
and to independence. We have a lot of independence in the state of Florida. So that's why it goes back and forth. And at the end, Floridians have a very independent streak. Don't talk to me about party. Talk to me about who you are and what you're going to do for me. And many of them, that's how they vote. And that's why it flips. My district is one that flips back and forth. Um, and, and that's, and it does affect my district, obviously, in getting voter turnout and continuing to speak to them on the issues that matter the most. And the reality, Jenny, is that the Trump administration has been targeting these voters for the past two years and spending a lot of money in the state of Florida. The battle for registering and attracting more voters is one important component of winning Florida. But while some campaigns are working to ensure more people are able to exercise their right to vote, others may be doing the opposite. Voter suppression is a major concern in Florida, and the issue has been exacerbated by COVID-19 and the Republican-led state government. Last week, the state extended its voter registration deadline due to technical issues. Its website was unable to handle such high levels of traffic. Here's Tori Taylor again. Someone I I was talking to the other day was talking about the state of Texas, um, about how Texas isn't a red state, it's a voter suppression state. And I think the exact same thing is true in Florida and a lot of these red, traditionally Southern states. I think what we see in states that have had kind of the unified Republican control, like a state like Florida has, where they have a Republican governor, they have a Republican legislature, you see some of the most sweeping um, voter suppression bills passing through the state legislative um, reins and, and being put into law, in addition to kind of the traditional access to ballot issues that we see in typical voter suppression laws in terms of, you know, restrictions on early voting and restrictions on voter registration, um, making it more difficult for some of the logistics and systems of voting. We also see, you know, a state like Florida, where um, in 2018, there was an amendment campaign to restore the voting rights for felons. And it passed. The people voted, um, you know, very determinatively to um, restore those rights. And what we saw in the, the year that followed was the Republican governor and the Republican legislature really put up as many roadblocks as possible for that um, um, that campaign and the law to be executed based on the people's will. And so, you know, we see Republicans putting up roadblocks, um, not only in just, you know, kind of the traditional, t- like, um, you know, very publicized ways of suppressing voters in terms of restricting um voter registration and early voting and access to the ballot, but also, you know, some of these, um, you know, advocacy efforts to actually expand the ballot box to felons and, you know, historically disenfranchised communities. Um, You know, one of the things that um, the Republican legislature and governor put up was actually that, you know, these felons could not vote until they paid restitution. They paid all their court fines, paid all their fines from prison, um, which was essentially a poll tax. And it's just one more obstacle. In some cases, you know, these were thousands and thousands of dollars. You know, I think we continue to see efforts like that in states like Florida, and it does impact the outcomes of the election, not just in terms of who can have access to the ballot, um, but also, you know, what they're voting for. 
You know, we see gerrymandering as a massive problem across the country, and Florida is no different. Um, you know, the Florida Republican legislature has, you know, continued to draw on, to draw very gerrymandered maps, and you know, we continue to fight in these districts that are systematically rigged to disenfranchise voters. Um, so, in addition to, you know, access to the ballot, and you know, making sure that individuals can cast their votes in, you know, an accessible way, it's also a matter of, you know, where they're casting their votes from. And so you really see this systematic disenfranchise and suppression from both sides in states like Florida. On election night, the country will look to Florida as a potential bellwether state for the presidency. If history is any guide, we may not have a satisfying or clear answer in Florida, while the fates of Biden, Trump, and many down-ballot candidates hang in the balance. What we do know is what happens in the election matters. Val and Debbie have both been able to have a significant impact in the House, from leading the impeachment inquiry, to passing the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, to addressing gun violence. I asked both women to tell me a story of one of their proudest moments in office. Here's Debbie. In 2018, these kids got organized and they created March for Our Lives and they marched and they elected the largest class in the House of Representatives that were going to work for gun safety measures. And we passed the universal background check bill in the House under my committee, the first one in 20 years. And that no one expected that was going to happen. And they made that possible. So Step by step, little by little, we're going to get there. And we just can't forget that. Because I lost my dad to gun violence and because I ran on that issue and because I share that story with people that I know here that I've become very close to, it was one of my proudest moments, very emotional, that room. We, we had to get it through committee, 11 hours of Republicans putting every roadblock for us to get that bill. And that room was filled with moms with students that had been in Parkland, with parents that had lost their children at that shooting in Parkland, and it was so emotional. And even the chairman at the end, after 11 hours, it was grueling, but but the feeling that we did it, I mean, it was so emotional. And, and that's one of my proudest moments. And here's Val. Every day that I walk into the Capitol, which I consider my office, um, and I think about my upbringing, and I think about things I, those who try to discourage me or say that I couldn't make it there. Uh, every day that I have an opportunity to walk into the Capitol and work on behalf of my constituents is a highlight for me. Um, and as I said earlier, my job is to make sure that we create those opportunities for uh, others. I have to say this, and it may be kind of an awkward highlight, but uh, this is the one that I want to. Um, my first speech on the House floor, and I think every member remembers their first speech. You know, I, I dreamed about what my first speech would be. I thought it would be about uh, health care or, or national security um, or education. Uh, my first speech on the House floor ended up being um, a tribute to uh, a police sergeant who had been killed um, that day uh, by a person who was wanted for murder and was in possession of a weapon who he should have never been in possession of uh, in the first place. 
And so, you know, it just reminded me of, and certainly coming from Orlando, where, as you know, we lost 49 people in the Pulse nightclub shooting. It was just a reminder that I did not anticipate, but a reminder that the work that we do is so important. And we have to make sure that we continue um, to pass that work on legislation and do everything within our power to get it passed that will keep guns out of the hands of people who should not have them in the first place. You should be able to go to school, church, synagogue, a nightclub, a movie theater, a concert, and not have to worry about someone walking in with a gun and gunning innocent people down. And so I just say that. It was, it was just a cold reminder for me that the work that I'm doing is so important and so uh, critical. Um, and then I, I have to talk, and you know, every time I have an opportunity to sponsor a bill or uh, uh, get legislation passed, I worked on uh, uh, some legislation, the health and wellness bill, uh, with one of my Republican colleagues from Indiana, Susan Bricks, early on in my time there. We were uh, glad to get that uh, bill passed to help first responders who deal with traumatic situations all the time. That's always a highlight. Um, being appointed as an impeachment manager. Um, protecting the Constitution, upholding the rule of law, and protecting our most precious system of government was a highlight for me. I mean, what an honor to have been chosen. I would say one of the biggest challenges has been uh, the partisanship on issues that it should not be again. When we think about our infrastructure, when we think about health care, our response to COVID-19, uh, those should not be political issues because they impact all of the American people. So I'm hoping, you know, every day that I'm on the House floor, it's a new opportunity for us to get our act together and get work done on behalf of the American people. Next time on Women Belong in the House, we're heading north to talk about a state that's somewhat new to the swing state roster, Georgia. Women Belong in the House is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Liz Smith and executive produced by me, Jenny Kaplan. Special thanks to Louisa Garbowit and Edie Allard. Talk to you next week. I want to tell you about another podcast I think you'll love. We hear about trans people in the news all the time, but we almost never hear trans people telling their own stories. The Translash podcast with Imara Jones is changing that by creating a space that centers the voices of trans people in conversations about news, politics, and culture. It's hosted by Amara Jones, a Peabody and Emmy Award winner. She's also a Black trans woman and a journalist. And Amara understands that trans people telling their own stories and having a voice in the conversation that affects them will save trans lives. So if you're trans and looking for a news and culture show that centers you or an ally who wants to learn more, Subscribe to the Translash podcast wherever you listen. I want to tell you about another show I think you might like. Are you exhausted from trying to do everything perfectly? Do you hold yourself back because you're scared of failure? Break away from the cult of perfection by subscribing and listening to Brave Not Perfect. It's hosted by Reshma Sajani, the founder and CEO of Girls Who Code and author of the international bestseller Brave Not Perfect. Join Reshma as she shares her secrets about bravery and success, because she wants to help you fear less, fail more, and live bolder. 
Subscribe to Brave Not Perfect wherever you listen to podcasts.